Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 129. Um, right now, I'm actually uh, working on a job on site, uh, doing some uh, some stonework, some granite work at the the base or the foundation line or the, 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 the water line, the watermark line. Um, and remember, granite was used there from freeze-thaw type situations where water would splash up and so it was much more durable than the brick that the uh, the dwelling is made out of. So uh, I'm going to start a series of uh, stone, and uh, it's going to be multiple, multiple uh, episodes. So uh, this is episode, again, 128. And uh, we're going to open up and talk about decay of stone. So the, uh, <clears throat> the problem with buildings, and one of the reasons for this podcast, is that over time, they will wear out. The process can pass unnoticed until it gets really bad. As buildings are at the mercy of the ravages of time, the elements, and quite often of people themselves, of, you know, lack of maintenance. So with such a hardy material stone, it is often uh, an accumulation of factors that will set off the demise of a building. And once started, it's very difficult to reverse the process. And, you know, thinking earlier today, the, the, the simplicity of stone and it's complex. It's you have to find it. You have to pick it. You have to cut it. You have to shape it. You have to um, do. You know, just the, the stone itself is so difficult to. Uh, it seems like such a simple process and simple thing. And I think as human beings, they go by the you know these huge libraries or maybe the Pantheon in Paris and things like that. They have no idea of the complexity of these things, nor do, nor do they, they think the average American. I, I think in Europe, they're much more tuned in to what happens with uh, fabric and building materials. So, but, uh, so as we said, it's quite the hardy material. And uh, so heritage conservation has the responsibility for reducing the impact and, where possible, setting things right for once in this country. But always without losing the essential character of the structure. So what is the problem? The first step is to identify what is happening and what is causing it. A building will tell us what is happening to it. Interpreting the story requires an ability to read the signs, plus a little bit of common sense and a little bit of intelligence, which a lot of us don't have at times for many reasons. But so what will become noticeable in this episode is that there is one underlying factor, kind of the root of all evil, but it also is the essence of life, water. So the inspection. The extent of investigation here is assumed that to be an overall view of what is happening to a building, the depth uh, of this study we're going to talk about will be defined by what is found First, make sure you have in the kit all you need and try to choose a good day. Too much sunlight may mean that significant details may actually be hidden in a shadow. Though you'll get to notice uh, some really nice pictures, though. But And obviously, the, the buildings or the uh, stonework you're going to look at should never be too wet. But let's, uh, let's talk about the role of water. So it can be generally assumed that where there is decay of stone that is not wholly caused by structural movement, 
water will be or has been significant in the process. Stone will, at some time, come into contact with water or be contaminated by moisture. Problems arise when the water carries soluble materials, is blocked in its travel, or exerts unwanted pressure. If a stone could be isolated from any form of moisture, it would probably remain whole with no significant degradation taking place. As this situation is one that is impossible to maintain because buildings are exposed to the elements, it is in the best interest to identify the deteriorants, to render them and their source inert or to remove them wholly. Obviously, artifacts such as monuments or statuary or buildings can be insulated to a degree from moisture ingress by the use of DPMs underneath where they touch the walls. But this is impossible with buildings. They're much too big. So size matters. There's a physical action whereby water will move through very fine spaces more quickly and easily than through large openings. This is known by ca as capillary action. Buildings can often have myriads of fine cracks, especially in cement areas uh, where things are joined, uh, which physically draw water into the fabric. So it behaves, or I'm sorry, so it behooves the inspector to get up close and check all these out. So let's talk about being on the ground level. So let's start at the bottom and to do an inspection of a building or for some stonework, have a walk around. Groundwater is a major problem, so you'd be looking to find a soil level lower than the floor level. If it is not, then moisture can creep into the masonry and travel upwards before it starts to exit. Is there pooling of water at the base? Does the terrain slope down to the building? The area first effective is, is that up to a meter above ground level. Evidence will be denuded pointing and decaying stone at the evaporation zone on the outside and damp decaying plaster inside. Often the previous attempts to solve this problem, which is only one symptom, will be hard. Cementinous, pointing or impervious plasters on the inside. These remedies have the unfortunate effect of pushing the moisture higher or onto other areas often leading to exacerbated decay of timber in the structure and collapse of internal floors or roofs. Good drainage is the key here, so figure out why the water is choosing to enter the building rather than drain away in the ground. Often, it is in previous work that is at fault. Concrete aprons around churches are a typical example of attempted remedial work. Designed to form a wash-through system to divert the water, they usually shrink and crack, allowing water in but preventing it from evaporating, and thus the crux of all work to historic buildings, and obviously modern ones as well, is highlighted. Moisture will always get in. It is letting it out that's crucial. Hence, our promotion of porous repair. Surface water drains should be clear on a regular basis. The next area is the masonry itself. Well-designed stonework has detailing that effectively disperses or reduces the impact of water. This includes projections of sills and wood drips and 
string courses, hood molds, and sloping weathered surfaces, all designed to throw off and keep the water from running into the fabric. Check the condition. Looking for open joints, mortar breakdown, fractures, or damaged missing elements. Pointing can look moth-eaten but still be doing its job. If it is near the surface of the wall and cannot be blown out, perhaps leave it until the next time. The color of stonework can help here, as damp stone is deeper in color than dry. Increased moisture levels will also allow biocolonization, starting with green stain from algae and possibly leading up to woody plant roots in the joints. Wet masonry will also promote fungal growth in timber that is set for the walls, as well as making damp environments ideal for wood-boring insect attacks. Let's, let's mention the roof here. Inspection of a roof can be difficult without good access, but a visual check can determine missing slates or tiles. Broken, broken pieces of these can often be found at the base of the building, promoting, promoting further investigation. Ridge tiles in old buildings become dislodged as roof timbers settle, with the pointing and bedding mortar breaking out at the joints. As water ingresses, it will cause even more movement in the timber, and thus the problem feeds on itself. Lead <coughs> flashing in valleys should be checked for tears, holes, or even missing pieces. Pointing on flashings is prone to failure as the lead expands or where thin slivers of mortar have become detached. When inserting or repairing flashings, a good application of waterproof mastic to the back of the joint will also help. Rather than setting <coughs> the sheet in mortar, use lead wool or shredded lead beaten to the joint instead. Anywhere where mortar is attempting to seal or join disparate materials, say stone to lead and so on, will be prone to failure as the differential expansion rates of the materials combined with a lack of adherence can create hairline fractures. Obviously, all gutters and downpipes should be clear of debris and not leaking. The wall behind downpipes is so often a place where damp problems originate, so check for water patching and greenery behind these. Let's take a minute and talk about salts. It is accepted that old buildings have to breathe, though a more precise term would be perspire. And to obstruct this action to stop what is happening is a bad thing. It is in the course of this attempt by moisture, present and mobile in a building, to attain a state of equilibrium that some factors of decay can come about. So when the air surrounding or inside a building is warmer, drier, or of a lower pressure, such as when the wind is blowing, moisture that is present in the wall will attempt to leave by evaporation through a suitably porous place in the fabric. If the moisture has passed through or has been contaminated by material containing minerals that are soluble in water, these minerals can be carried in solution to the place where the moisture evaporates. Once the moisture has evaporated to a point where it is all gone or the concentration of the minerals is too great to stay in solution, which, as we know, is the saturation point, then the, then the minerals will be deposited on or near the surface of the stone, or this can also happen in the plaster of your house. 
So let's talk about these hidden salts that we're referring to. Soluble salts are carried in moisture, and these will, through drying and wetting stages, cause cryptofluorescence, where the moisture evaporates out of the masonry, leaving the salt to turn into crystals. The microcrystallization will, over a period of time, bring about enough pressure to break down the matrix of the stone, with subsequent loss of material. The first indication of salt is effervescence on the surface. This is a white dusty powder that can be easily brushed off. Also look for the absence of biological staining, as the majority of these salts are inimical to plants that can effectively prevent the buildup of such. But be aware, though, that the runoff from metal such as window grills, ironwork, and cooperous material will give the same effect. Fresh powder. The next stage is that the surface becomes friable, powdering off to a greater depths as the loose material becomes detached. This should be happening in the sacrificial elements of the building, the mortar and the plaster, which can be removed and reapplied, providing a fresh defense against the destructive forces of the salts. When impermeable surface coatings, such as cementinous mortars or waterproof paints are used, the salts are soluble uh, and they begin to materialize at a place where the water can evaporate out of the wall. This will be in cracks in the render, around openings and timber, and on the interior surfaces of the buildings. If the wall has cementinous pointing, it may be seen that the stone edges abutting the pointing will degrade themselves, leaving a trellis of cement mortar almost floating on the surface. The same thing may happen when micropores surface treatment, and here I'm talking about all the weatherproofing finishes and permeable paint systems, is carried out but does not have a pore system large enough to let large molecules of salt pass through or when the surface pores of a stone become blocked by the intrusion of some other mineral, as in contour scaling in sandstone. Humidity. <clears throat> some, salt, some salts are hygroscopic, that is, they tend to absorb moisture from the air. The result is most noticeable when there are high levels of humidity present inside the building. The prime example being where the building has public access and has central heating installed. This causes uneven periods of drying, warming, and cooling of the building that bears no relation to the weather outside. The product of many people breathing, particularly in a warm atmosphere, will cause high levels of humidity. Stone will usually be several degrees cooler, and so the moisture will tend to condense on the surface, resulting in a wet stone that will have salts that are present in the stone in solution near the surface. Another example of this would be mullions. Weather variations produce salt concentration on the interior surfaces, which leads to their rapid decay. The same can be seen where the building acts as a condensation point for mist and fog. This often occurs in isolated positions or if the building is near water. We will look at the effect of plant and animal life later, but it is worth mentioning the effects of bird droppings, which can produce a localized source of humidity also. Pollution. Soluble salts can play a role of decay of stone 
through contamination from airborne pollution. With the burning of fuels and fossil fuels and materials on a large scale for energy production has come the infamous phenomenon of acid rain. Though this has been around for many years, it is an increase in the industrialization that has caused it to rise to quite critical levels right now. Modern contributors to airborne pollution or any uh, even vehicle emissions, diesel being the worst offender totally, and extensive use of fossil fuels for heating and power in addition. Stone is affected by airborne pollution in various ways, chiefly according to its mineralogy. Acid rain, let's talk about that. So basically it's sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, and to some extent carbon dioxide. All products of burning. So when in rain will form acids that can react with minerals in stone, most actively in limestone, where the sulfurous acid changes the calcium binder into calcium sulfate or gypsum. So let's uh, let's just add let's just talk a bit about desalinization. So what is that? I mean, desalinization. You know, probably is you, they take some. You know, when it refers to drinking water, you take drinking water, you remove the salts, and you have a very purified form of water. So, yes, this is the removal of salts um, and would seem the obvious solution, but the general process is quite simple. Spray the concentrated area, saturating it with deionized water, DIW as we're going to call it, and lay the poultrous of absorbent material, which is acid-free tissue or pulp paper, soaked with DIW onto the stone, leaving it to dry so that the salts are drawn into the, the poultice. Remove the poultice, place it in the container of DIW and test for electrical conductivity. High salt concentration equals high conductivity. Carry out laboratory tests to identify the type of salts. So the issues. As a poultice dries and shrinks off the wall, it stops absorbing. Perhaps a case that could be made uh, for most moist mediums for removal before drying. How the poor size of the stone affects the salt transfer is not being addressed here with the use of universal mediums. The problem can occur if the source of the salts is still present, or if there is salt in the masonry that will not be removed, as the resulting low concentration of salt will encourage further salt migration. There are so many parameters that can alter the effects that it is almost impossible to say whether this will be successful. So be aware of relying on a single concentration reading. There is no guideline on how much salt is safe and how to draw conclusions from a single sample that is not you know, overly sensible. Limitations should be recognized. There is, there is research all over the world on this subject, and while they have widely different approaches in technology, they tend to agree on one thing. There is no telling what will happen when trying to desalinate porous building materials affected by soluble salt. Complete desalinization can only be 100% certain if the stone can be completely isolated from any further moisture travel before, during, and after the process. This is patent, <coughs> patiently impossible for the building. After desalination, it may be necessary to modify the environmental conditions to prevent or hinder further outbreaks. Okay, that is part one. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.